Welcome to Navigating the Spectrum with Michelle Portlock. I'm your host, Michelle Portlock, and I'm so happy to have you with me. So today I have a guest. His name is Aaron Wright, and I've been really looking forward to interviewing Aaron, and I'm so grateful that he um, agreed to this conversation today. But I want to tell you a little bit about Aaron. Aaron is a husband and a father of two children. His youngest child um, is autistic, and this led him to all kinds of experiences, which eventually, which we'll talk about today, which um, actually led him to write 13 Doors, which I'm so grateful that he did because I am a huge fan of this novel and I wanted to share it with you so that you can go pick it up and read it yourselves. So I want to also tell you that Aaron, he's a nurse and he currently manages the trauma program at the hospital that he works at. And I am just grateful to have you with us today. Thank you, Aaron, for joining me. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. So Aaron, I wanna ask you to tell us as listeners and to tell me as a huge fan, what your experiences with autism have been. Um, well, I, I... I would say it's incomplete to say what my experience with with experiences with autism has been if you're just sure. looking at the story in the book, mm -hmm. uh, because it's it's so much more than what I described in there. So, uh, as you said, my daughter, so my youngest, I have two kids. Uh, she is autistic. That diagnosis didn't come along until uh, what I would deem as late. Uh, wasn't until she was eight years old that we received mm -hmm. a, a formal diagnosis. Our journey with autism, so to speak, has been uh, one of, I think, discovery, um, love, learning what uh, difference is like. Um, it was uncomfortable at first, uh, only because of our interactions with the systems that were, that were supposed to help us, but were not. Mm -hmm. uh, um, I've never been a big person for labels. I think it's just kind of my, you know, 17 year old self go to, right? Like, don't label <laughs> me, don't label my child. Uh, there's mm -hmm. nothing wrong with us. There's nothing wrong with her. Mm -hmm. um, it, for me, the transformation in kind of accepting that label or that diagnosis was uh, not really, there was no sense of grief, but it was, it was more of an accepting of, of okay, this is the ticket right? This is what gets you into uh, the systems that are supposed to be there to help you. Mm -hmm. If you have a physical disability, it's, it's that blue placard that allows you to, to park uh, closer to where you're going. Uh, so for me and for us, and even I think for my, my daughter's, um, you know, she's 15 now. And listening to her kind of describe uh, herself, I don't know that she she knows she's autistic. She identifies as autistic, uh, but mm -hmm. that is not, uh, that's not core to who she thinks she is. Um, it's just, you know, one of the facets of who she is, you know, in the, in the kind of global view, it's been, I'm really thankful actually, uh, in a lot of ways that she's taught us how to be better people. She's taught us how to be more inclusive. Uh, she's taught us, a lot more about, uh, you know, difference in learning styles, difference in perceptions and differences in awareness. And I think mm -hmm. that she's made us all better people in that sense. 
I love that you share that. And I like the thought, I'm going to kind of tie this into your book, but one of the issues that I have struggled with personally is I have had these experiences. They are our family's experiences. We know. And so it has changed me and it has changed my husband. It's changed my daughter and my son who have autism diagnosis, but also their siblings. We are all better people for it. But then I think I want other people to understand this. I want other people to accept this. So the beauty of this book, 13 Doors, that you've written is I feel like it's an open window into this world and people on the outside of this world can actually look in and understand what they're looking at a little bit better. And I really like that you're broadening that view for others that aren't part of the autism community. And that's one of the things that I really appreciated about this book is I thought, I really want to share this because I want my extended family members and my friends to pick this up and read it and and gain a better understanding of this world that we live in. And I want that because I think it leads to not only awareness, but more acceptance of yeah. autism in general. So what inspired you to write 13 Doors? Well, you, you stole my phrase. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, there were, so there was, there's three things, really. There were three kind of major motivating factors for me. The first was before I even knew it was going to be a book. Um, for me, it was a journaling exercise. Uh, mm. It was almost like a mental health exercise for me. Like I would, you know, I would come home from either from work or we'd be, have gone through some sort of IEP meeting that was just didn't go our way. We had some sort of interaction, uh, you know, at the school or with peers that just didn't, you know, didn't sit right. So for me, it was a way to, my wife is the talker, I'm not. So she's the extrovert. She'll talk to a wall. I, you know, I come home <laughs> and I internalize it. But for me, so it was a journaling thing. You know, I would write on scraps of paper and it just, it helped me kind of get process my thoughts and get them out. And then at some point, um, you know, we'd had really had gone through a rough patch with our, our school system. And I knew at some point I wanted to turn this into more than just the scraps of paper sitting in my nightstand. Mm. And I wanted to do two things. Um, one, I wanted families like ours. I wanted, a, a, I always say a mirror and a window. I wanted families like ours to be able to see themselves in this story in that I feel like a lot of families like ours probably go through you know, these periods of isolation where you feel like you are the only one that's kind of confronting these issues. And I don't mean <laughs> that in terms of, you know, confronting the child's issues. I mean, in terms of confronting the system that's supposed to be there to support them or, sure. it's, or it's the community that doesn't have that awareness, that doesn't know how to react or to treat your child or to, you know, treat your family or be inclusive of your family. Mm -hmm. So there's this kind of isolating factor that comes with raising a disabled child. And then the, the, the third part of it um, really was that window in. Uh, and I wanted to humanize our experience. I wanted to humanize us. I wanted to humanize our children. Uh, I wanted us to be uh, seen as peers and to know that we have this very um, 
unique but not unique experience. I think every family, you, you don't even have to have a family, every person goes through some sort of process of change or some sort of transformation. You're mm -hmm. kind of, you know, you're the new naive person at work and then there's this, you know, you have all of these experiences and then on the other end of that, you've kind of become transformed. That is the story of us. That is the story of the parent of someone who's raising a disabled child. But the, the lens, I think, with which we're seeing, maybe from the outside world, you know, looking at us currently, I think is really biased. Mm -hmm. uh, or at least that's the feedback I always felt like I was receiving. You know, we're the loud parent that's in the principal's office complaining that this isn't right, right? We're the, we're the parents that are sitting in that parent-teacher conference that are always going over the 15 minute that was 15 minutes that was dedicated to your kid and we're eating into the kid that's uh, coming behind us because we need that time to be able to discuss the issues that we're having. Mm -hmm. So we're always kind of painted in this negative light and I really wanted... Um, I really wanted people to see that, you know, we're people just like them, our families are families just like theirs. Uh, it's just the challenges that we face are slightly different or look different than the challenges that their families may face. So it was really, yes, I really wanted our community to be able to see themselves in the book and recognize that the struggles that they were going through were not unique. Um, and as isolating as all of these systems, whether it's the school system or it's the health system, can be and can make you feel you are not alone. There is a community of people around you. But then also to bring in, like I said, bring in these other people that don't have the same experiences, don't have that awareness, uh, maybe really have some interest in you know, having their child be friends with an autistic child that just don't know how. So, mm -hmm. you know, sharing our story with other people to kind of, you know, recruit allies, as I always say, to, to bring them to our side, to see us as community and peers. I love that. I've always talked about um, building our support system. And I think that's part of what you're saying is the more people that we educate and the more people that understand and accept, those become our people. And we can do this together. Uh, one thing I want listeners to know is I asked Aaron earlier, I said, is this book your life? And he said, yes. yes. So Aaron, tell us about this, a little bit about this experience without telling the story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I'm not creative enough to uh, come up with a totally different story other than my life. Um, <laughs> so that's what I, I ended up putting in print. But really the, the story that you get in the book, um, as you mentioned, I have two children and it's really kind of that, I'm not sure if you've had this experience, but it's, you know, those early kind of adulthood years, right? You've, you've graduated, we, you know, my wife and I had graduated from college. We're looking towards, okay, what, what kind of careers, what kind of life do you wanna have? And there's, you know, you're freshly married, uh, the first baby has arrived um, you're looking towards buying, um, you know, kind of your first home or your first uh, property. And it's all of these kind of like checkbox type things, right? These are all of the things that, you know, quote unquote, normal, you know, married couples are supposed to do. And so you, you mm -hmm. enter our story at that point, which is, you know, my son's been born and we've purchased our, our first home and we've moved to this, um, you know, seemingly quiet, nice, uh, tight knit community that's 
you know, outwardly uh, inclusive and supportive, and it's kind of full of hope and promise. Um, and then it, as after our daughter's born, that slowly starts to kind of unravel and it doesn't unravel because of her, it unravels because of the systems that are around us. Sure. And it, it, it really, so the story really kind of, the arc of the story is, um, you know, what does it look like before you have a diagnosis in terms of, you know, are these feelings I'm having about my child normal? Um, am I noticed this difference that I'm noticing? Is it truly a difference? Mm-hmm. Um, the experts that I'm going, you know, I'm put quote unquote experts um, that I'm going to for help, assistance, guidance. Do they truly know themselves? Uh, are they pointing me in the right directions? Uh, are we really kind of getting uh, the help and accommodations and assessments that we need? Um, and then really uh, kind of in the background is obviously the, uh, the gender inequity in the, in the diagnosis of autism in, in children is that, you know, the race current ratio is uh, four to one boys to girls. And I really don't believe that there's necessarily a biological basis uh, for that, but I think that there's a strong referral bias uh, against girls. So sure. I kind of walk us through, you know, as the beginning of the story goes, I kind of walk us through that, that identification and referral process, and then how fraught uh, that really can be for families, and how much you have to really educate yourself, uh, not only about your child's disability, but the system that you need to be able to engage in order to get, you know, proper assessments, proper accommodations, uh, proper access, and how much uh, that kind of heaps unnecessary pressure and stress upon families. I mean, I was having a conversation with someone the other day, and I said, you know, if you had an appendicitis, and I, I really don't like, you know, equating disability to disease. Sure. Um, and I don't want, I hopefully your listeners don't take that away from this, but you know, if, if you had an appendicitis, you wouldn't have to Google or get books to figure out that, okay, what I'm having is an appendicitis and then go find a doctor and then lobby that doctor to prove that you're having an appendicitis. And then once you've finally proven to them that you do, then teach them how to remove the appendix. Right. <laughs> and, 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 yeah. <laughs> right. And then make sure that the hospital and the, the operating room had given you the proper antibiotics. You, you, you don't, in no other process do you have to become the absolute expert and advocate. Um, And that really has a detrimental effect. And there's only so much. And if I have a grief about any of this, that is it, is that that then is such a time consuming, um, wholly consuming thing for families that there really doesn't leave room for much more else in life and it spins, it can really spin uh, the way that you view your disabled child in a negative light. Mm-hmm. If, you know, the special education system in particular is a deficits-based system. You know, it's, it's a fail first. You know, the only way that you're going to get access is if you point to what is quote-unquote wrong with your mm-hmm. child. And so you have to expend this incredible amount of energy just proving that there's something, again, quote unquote, wrong or deficient with your child in order to get them proper access. And I really think that that internally shifts how people view their children. 
And I don't think that's right. I don't either. (laughs) I really don't. In fact, you know, we had a family move here and they have at least one autistic child, if not two. And when they moved here, they called to ask me questions about the school system. And I felt I just felt sick because they had to start in a school that they knew wasn't a good fit for their child but they had to show that it wasn't a good fit. They essentially had to watch their child fail so that they could take that data and to the school district and say, see, we told you that our child would fail here. Now will you give us the opportunity to go to this special autism school? And that's what it took. And I just felt my blood boil. I thought, why do we have to do this? And by the way, they weren't, they weren't trying to have their child fail in their classes and in their studies, but their child just wasn't, their child wasn't grasping it and they weren't getting the resources they needed. So they weren't able to excel and exceed in the way that they can, because they do have many capabilities that school just wasn't able to tap into those like they should have been. So I just think that that's, I think, a horrible position to be put in as, as a family or as a parent, because you want to, I mean, I remember distinctly having these conversations with my wife, you know, you want to celebrate these successes, right? You mm-hmm. want to, you want to be, you know, I remember with my son, um, you know, he, he didn't have the same sort of academic issues, but you know, if there were issues that would ever come up, it would be, okay, well, let's get him some help. Mm-hmm. I re- and I remember having conversations about, well, if we if we get our daughter help and she's able to, um, you know, maybe achieve something or meet some sort of benchmark, you know, are we actually making things worse for her because we'd invest, you know, we'd, we would invest all of this time and effort into doing what the school should actually be doing. Mm-hmm. And then them having turning around and saying, no, look, see, she's actually met it. Um, and completely dismissing all of the additional work and accommodations that we had to put into just getting her to that place. Mm-hmm. It, it is so, you know, disconcerting. To, I mean, it's, it's mind bending to, to go through these systems that are really supposed to be there to help you. In no other world of disability do we not do things in anticipation. So the, That's such a good point. Right. The ramp is there in anticipation that someone is going to need it. In special education, it's not there in anticipation. That is so sad that I really like the way that you're breaking this down and explaining it for those that are listening. I think a lot of the parents that are listening are saying, yes, exactly. That's been my experience. And so I'm glad that you're bringing it up because it validates those feelings, which kind of takes me to the idea of advocating in general. I follow you on Instagram and you post a lot of really powerful comments about becoming an advocate. And I think there's so many different ways to advocate for our child or children with special needs. So tell me what it means to you to be an advocate. It's, uh, I don't, you know, it's actually a really tough question. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I never really know how to answer it. Um, the way I chose to advocate really was by writing my, by putting my story out into space. Mm. Um, 
you know, as I said, I'm, I am not the extrovert. I'm, I'm the introvert and I really don't necessarily feel super comfortable, you know, sharing personal stories. And so for me, getting that out there and, and sharing that what people are going through, they're not going through in isolation that they, what they're experiencing is not normal and they're not the only ones uh, who've had this experience was kind of my first step into advocacy. And it really was born out of so many of the families that we knew um, as we were going through kind of those early, early elementary, early childhood years, mm-hmm. didn't have the same resources that we did. You know, I'm very lucky in that I have, uh, you know, a strong, stable marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never had to worry about um, losing my job. Um, you know, we're by no means rich, but we, you know, we've never had to worry about uh, any sort of financial insecurity or food insecurity or health insurance insecurity. Um, but there, I know so many families that have had that experience. Mm-hmm. The, the process of advocating just in the special education system alone, right? Going through IEP meetings, having to have, you know, binders upon binders of all of these assessments, you know, bankers boxes full of, uh, you know, homework and, all of this evidence that you need to present that, to show that they need help and access mm-hmm. is so time consuming. I cannot fathom doing that in isolation, meaning I can't fathom being, you know, a, a single parent trying to navigate that world. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't imagine trying to navigate that world if I didn't have, you know, some level of financial resources that would help me find, uh, you know, a, a professional type advocate or to Mm -hmm. seek legal advice and for so many families that's that's their truth that's their that's their life Mm -hmm. so if by putting my story out there helped them in some way be able to point to yes that is exactly what i'm going through and the and the system needs to be changed this process needs to be fixed you know i can think of a handful of families uh, in particular that you know, after I finally divulged to my wife that I was writing this, you know, <laughs> I said, this is, these are the people that I'm writing it for because they, oh. they, they can't, they don't have, they didn't have the same sort of resources uh, to be able to fight and push back uh, in the ways that we did. And, you know, unfortunately they're, they're still kind of mired in that same system. Uh, yeah. And, and, you know, we had an opportunity that they did not. It's true. Something that I'm hearing from you is as parents of children with special needs, we are advocating for our child. But like you said, we're also advocating for other parents so that they can become more educated and more aware and understand um, the steps that they can take for their own children, too. And the part of the process, we are advocating we're, I feel like everywhere I go, I'm advocating for my child, whether it be within the school or whether I am teaching other parents, other adults, other children about my children. Oh, you know what? This is why my child does this, or this is why, you know, there's a reason behind that. And this is why this is how it makes them feel. This is what they need to do about those feelings. And so it's constantly teaching. So sometimes 
when I think of advocating, it can be as simple as teaching. Yeah. But it can also go fairly extreme and in depth, which is fighting. (laughs) Right. So think about how much easier those conversations would be to have with parents, community members, if, so this idea of inclusion, Mm -hmm. if that actually worked or if it was actually kind of put into place in the way, in a way that was meaningful. Mm -hmm. So I absolutely think it was imperative that my daughter be educated alongside of her neurotypical peers, Mm -hmm. right. In, you know, a quote unquote traditional classroom setting. Mm -hmm. But I, honestly feel like it is equally important for those neurotypical peers to be educated alongside children like her. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, you don't, we don't learn in the abstract. You, you know, we learn in real time, we learn in a hands-on way. So if like for me, my educational experience as, you know, elementary school, junior high, even high school was completely isolated uh, from anyone who was disabled. Mm-hmm how does that inform how you view the disability community? It informs it in that they're not part of your community, right? They're seen as different. They're seen as separate. So that intermixing, that diversity in the classroom has to happen early because then it will make, maybe it wasn't easy for us as parents to have to describe, you know, why my daughter uh, needs certain things to other parents. But the next generation potentially doesn't have to have those, you know, overt conversations with their peers because they would know because they were in classrooms with neurodiverse children. That's such a good point. You know, both of my autistic children are in the mainstream school system. The one thing that I learned from my own mistakes, I call them mistakes because I learned from what I hadn't done. And what I learned is I would say to other parents, oh, yes, my daughter is autistic. Did you, you know, did you know this? Were you aware? But I wasn't saying what that meant. And I think that, you know, I, we did this episode one of this podcast I did with my daughter and I had multiple parents reach out and say, I just didn't understand. And my feeling was that's on me because I didn't take the time to really explain what that meant and what that looked like for my daughter. And so there are many experiences that she had where I feel like she struggled more than she should have had to, particularly in social situations, because there was not a full understanding. And so gratefully, I've learned that lesson and I'm able to apply it to her younger sibling, (laughs) her brother, (laughs) and I'm able to share more of that. And like you said earlier, it's not always easy to share some of these personal experiences and personal stories because it puts you in a very vulnerable situation and the spotlight's on you and on your child. And you don't know how people are going to receive that information. But I've decided I don't, I I don't necessarily put a lot of what, how do I say this? I don't want to say I don't care, because I do care. But in a way, I don't, because this is our story. And this is our experience. And I'll share it with the hope that they understand. Um, And if they don't, then I think to myself, maybe they will next time. 
So I'm planting the seed, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. So I appreciate you sharing that. So I guess I have, I have two more questions for you. And one is, (laughs) one is how has, we kind of talked about this before, but if you had to share something with other parents um, who are part of an autism family, what, what would you tell them? Gosh, um, I don't, I guess, yeah. What, like, what would I tell myself, right? Oh, knowing, kn- knowing, knowing now, mm-hmm. um, what I didn't know then, uh, ignore the noise. And I think you'd asked me this earlier, uh, take the long view, yes. right? which is, um, you know, so much of those early childhood years, at least th- this was my perception and maybe it's not a, uh, accurate one, but it was, you know, you're going to these well child visits or these well baby visits and there's, oh, great. Okay. We're checking off the milestone box here, right? It's, you know, we're, we're babbling, we're crawling, we're walking, we're talking. Um, and so those early years, uh, for me really felt like there was this added emphasis on doing the things that are quote unquote normal. Mm-hmm. If, if I could go back and talk to myself, I would say devalue that. It is important in the sense that uh, the recognition that those differences exist is important because it will help you identify and it will uh, potentially help you get a, a, you know, a label, which that label is ultimately a a ticket to access and services later. Uh, But don't get caught up, don't get swept up in that. And that only becomes uh, more heightened, I think, once you enter those, you know, early elementary years, because then there, in addition to the developmental milestones, there's also those academic milestones. And uh, for kids like ours, they're not, the access to those isn't linear. Um, You know, it comes and fits and starts. There might be certain islands of capacity. There might be some that, that they're not, but don't tie or don't wed your emotional health or your perception of your child to meeting somebody else's mile markers. So it, to me, the long view really is about embracing, um, you know, who your child is as a person, as a human being, as a family member, um, with the goal to making them a, a more, you know, happy, healthy person. So, I love that. Yeah. Just for those of you that are listening, I was telling Aaron earlier that I went through his book and I highlighted some of the thoughts and um, that he shared throughout the book. And one of the quotes that I took right out of it is he said, life had become about the long view. So that's, that's why he's talking about the long view here. And it struck me, it's not autism isn't about quick fixes and trying to get our child on track with everyone else and be right there with them. It's, it's about looking at where our child is. It's, it's about what Aaron said, taking a look at where our child is and accepting where they are. And it's okay to push them to keep moving, but do it at their pace. Something that is comfortable for them and that works for them. And that isn't overly stressful for your family as a whole, because autism really is a family diagnosis. So I really appreciate the time that you've spent with us, Aaron, but here's what I know. 
they're not broken. They're not, they're not, they're not broken. No, they're not broken. broken. They're not broken people that the lens that our society views them through is, is broken. That's that's it. And it it is incredibly difficult, I think, to change that perspective Mm -hmm. and not only, you know, grappling with it internally or individually as a parent or as a family unit, uh, but shifting that cultural and societal perspective is incredibly hard. So as much as I can say it and reinforce it, ignore the noise. They're, they're not, they're not what's broken. I love that so much. So Aaron, I have one more question for you. I know that those that are listening are going to want to find you on social media. They're going to want to, they probably have questions for you. So how do they find you? Where can they locate you at? Uh, Instagram is uh, where I tend to spend most of my time, mm-hmm. uh, which I guess is a good and a bad thing. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, at author Aaron Wright, mm-hmm. uh, you can find me uh, on my website, uh, which is www.authoraaronwright.com. Um, I actually feel more comfortable in that space because I've got a, a blog that I tend to periodically maintain mm-hmm. uh, and kind of help, you know, as I have discussions with folks like you or, um, allies and people who really want to provide a platform, it kind of, you know, springs additional ideas like, oh man, I really wish that that would have been part of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe that's something that needs more explanation. And so that's kind of my, my space to be able to, to share that with people. Uh, and if they want to find the book, that's a great place to, to find it and purchase it as well. Oh, that's perfect. Thank you for sharing. I found, I found his book right on good old Amazon. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's there too. Uh huh. And yeah. so had it in my hand in a couple of days and couldn't put it down, quite honestly. So yeah. I, I am shamelessly promoting his book, 13 Doors, <laughs> because I really believe in what the story that he shared. And it made me initially, I didn't, I thought that it was your family's experience, but I wasn't 100% certain. And as I was reading the book, I kept thinking, all I want to do is hug them. I want to hug every (laughs) last one of them. And I just appreciated the story that you shared. And the fact that it is, the story is your life. It's your own experience. So thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. And I, just to touch on that, I don't, I think if it's not authentic, people aren't going to believe it. And they're no, they're going to know it's not authentic. So there was no getting around uh, not making this true to what it was. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, but thank you. I really appreciate the the kind words. That's, that's it. hopefully more people read it. I mean, I, I really, you know, to, to add a fourth goal to what I spoke about earlier, really it's to spark a conversation and maybe drive some change in the system mm-hmm. so that uh, families like ours don't have to go through Uh, what we went through. I love it. And I appreciate the time and energy that you spent writing, writing it down so that we can all benefit from that. So thank you listeners for being with me today. And I hope you'll join me again next week. 